this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast. If this is your first time listening, the purpose of the podcast is to introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I'll be chatting with a wide array of interesting people, from ranchers to writers, conservationists to entrepreneurs, athletes to artists, really anyone who does important work and has a fun story to tell. These are people I meet through my work as a Rocky Mountain ranch broker and through my hobbies that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. And speaking of mountains, Colorado is world famous for its massive snow-capped peaks and all the outdoor activities that revolve around them. The mountains are what drew me to Colorado, and they're a big part of what makes the Colorado lifestyle so attractive to so many people. My guest today has built his career around preserving some of Colorado's mountains, while also working to ensure that the public can access the peaks without adversely affecting the fragile high-altitude ecosystem. Lloyd Athern is the executive director of the Colorado 14ers Initiative, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to protect and preserve the natural integrity of Colorado's 14,000-foot peaks through active stewardship and public education. The 14ers Initiative builds and maintains trails, educates hikers and climbers on best practices in the high country, conserves the native alpine tundra, and generally helps to ensure that these mountains are not inadvertently destroyed from overuse. We had a wide-ranging conversation that covered a lot of interesting topics. We talked about why 14ers need to be protected, some of the specific methods that CFI uses to monitor the mountains, advice for those who are interested in hiking their first 14er, as well as advice for young people who'd like to work in an outdoor, conservation-focused industry. It was a great conversation full of lots of useful information, so I hope you enjoy it. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor, Mountain Khakis. Mountain Khakis is an outdoor apparel company based out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming that makes some of my favorite clothing. It's perfect for life in the American West. Durable, versatile, and comfortable. The company started back in 2003 making rugged pants for life in the outdoors, but since then they've expanded their offerings to include shirts, shorts, jeans, and hats. With the snow finally melting here in Colorado, I'd suggest you check out some of their shorts. I really like the poplin shorts. I have three pairs and I'm actually wearing some right now. So go to mountaincackies.com to see their full selection or check them out on social media. Just go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and type in at Mountain Khakis. All right, we're, we're going. So I guess the first question that I've asked people is when you meet people, um, whether it's at a networking event or just, just randomly somewhere, and they ask you what you do for a living, what do you tell them? The answer to that always always varies based on whether people are in Colorado, whether they're outdoor people. Yep. Uh, if I'm in some other part of the country and I say I run an organization that works on the 14ers, there's a lot of head scratching and yeah. like, what's that? Yeah. But around here, I can say that I'm you know the executive director of Colorado 14ers mm-hmm. Initiative, that we work on trail building, alpine conservation, and, and stewardship and education on the 14,000-foot peaks here in Colorado. Um, it's funny you say that about people from outside of Colorado because I was having lunch with some people the other day from North Carolina and I was just kept casually throwing out the term 14er and finally one of the people said, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. And so can you explain for people who aren't here in Colorado, what is a 14er? Sure. Uh, 14er is a name that's given to the mountains that are over 14,000 feet in elevation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it only makes sense in America where we're about the only country that still uses the old imperial measurements. Yeah. Probably would be, what, 4,500 meters or something? Sure, sure. A very different uh, 
different measurement, but they are um, really only three states in the lower 48 that have 14ers. Mm -hmm. Colorado has more than 50, uh, California somewhere about 15, 16, I think, Mm -hmm. and Washington has one. Mm -hmm. So only a few states in the West, and the ones here are a bit different than those in California and Washington. And so how many are there officially? Because I know when you're looking online, some people say there are 54, some people say there are 58. What's the official word on that? At some level, that's one of those how many angels can dance on the head of a pen argument. And there are people who believe different things. There are, let me sort of break it down. There are 58 named points of land that have an elevation over 14,000 feet. Those don't all technically qualify as separate mountains mm-hmm. because there's a, um, some criteria that, that uh, mountain-related organizations have put up that talk about the lateral distance between points, mm-hmm. the uh, extent to which, if you're following a connecting ridge, you drop down in elevation. So um, in the end, there are only 53 mountains that mm-hmm. qualify as uh, meeting all of these criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, climbers have used the number 54 because there are some of the peaks that, uh, while not meeting the technical criteria, are from a mountaineering perspective, real challenging peaks. Sure. And there are some that do meet the criteria that aren't so much. So things like North Maroon Peak, El Diente Peak, mm-hmm. historically have been viewed as as 14ers and mountaineering challenges in their own right. Mm-hmm. They don't technically qualify. Got it. Got it. Yeah, the uh, the, the one there with Democrat, Bross, and Lincoln, and right. then I guess Cameron. Cameron is, is just, you know, a bump, on a, the, bump. a bump on the ridge. You would hardly notice it. Uh, I still others. hit it though when I was up there. Oh, went, of course, right people, people do, and some will take little little um, uh, signs about the peak, and a lot of people will climb it. Personally, when I did it, I was like, oh, "It's not even much of a peak." Yeah, and yeah. There's another one called Conundrum Peak, which is next to to uh, Castle Peak oh, yeah. out in the Alps. Yep. And when I, you know, you you climb Castle, and when you go down the ridge over there. There were several little, you know, knobs on the ridge, and I was like, well, which? Yeah. The one that I thought was higher isn't actually the one that they said is higher. Oh, really? And I was like, yeah, okay. You know, and that gives you an idea of some of the, the points that don't really qualify as sure. 14ers. Sure. Um, some of them are pretty indistinct. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because whenever I'm up there, if, if I have the opportunity to hit a summit, I want to, but... Then you think, wow, did it did it count towards the the list? And, but that means I, I'm not thinking about it properly. I need to be well, in it, not not uh, you know checking things off a off a list. I think I need to be enjoying being in the mountains. Well, and that you you hit on a funny point. One of my colleagues who's climbed all of the 14ers, he also then went to do. There's I think North Mount Massive and some others that are just underneath oh, yeah. fourteen thousand. And he said, look, I'm getting older. If if uh, somehow along the, the line with upthrust of the continent yeah. or something, they changed to 14. I don't want to have to go back when I'm 70 and, and go climb these peaks. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, some people obsess about the details. Others just are out there having fun. Yeah, I guess you can do whatever you want up there. It's, it's definitely fun, though. Um, so for another question for people that are not in Colorado, you know, when you think of a mountain, especially a 14,000-foot mountain, you think of something that's solid, it's never going to go anywhere, at least not for millions of years. So why do these mountains need protecting? That is the inherent paradox of the work that we do. Mm-hmm. People from afar see the mountains and they see the rock, they see the snow. They think 
enduring, durable, rugged, uh, why do you need to protect these? The reality is that the high peaks in Colorado, not just the 14ers, but, but especially the 14ers, have um, a thin layer of alpine tundra vegetation mm-hmm. that contains plants that are rare in the United States, sometimes yep. rare in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Colorado mountains have the largest concentration of alpine tundra vegetation in the lower 48. And because we're at the sort of the southern terminus of these plant communities that extend up into the Arctic, you've ended up having uh, some plants that exist here that don't exist elsewhere, some really rare plants. Mm -hmm. And they are uh, incredibly well adapted to living in these environments, the high ultraviolet radiation, Mm -hmm. the difference in temperature over the course of a day and over the course of a year, but they are extremely vulnerable to trampling. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you step on these plants five to 10 times, you can set their back, their growth dramatically or kill them outright. Mm -hmm. And when they are set back, it'll take them 10 to a thousand times slower to regrow than plants that might just be another thousand or two feet lower in the, in the forested areas. So the combination of rare and fragile plant cover and an exploding use in population on these peaks and the fact that when we started 22 years ago, mm-hmm. there were only two planned routes on the 14ers. Mm-hmm. It has created this natural impact of erosion and steep trails yep. that were never adequately planned. So CFI is in the business of developing a network of trails that are sustainably de- designed, durably constructed, and built to protect the, the resource while allowing hiking to uh, occur. So you said that you said 40 years ago there were only two designated routes? Just 22 years ago. 22 years 22, ago? 22, yeah. So in the, CFI started in 1994. Okay. And at that point, there was just the Keyhole route on Long's Peak and the Bar Trail on Pike's Peak. Really? All of the other use that was occurring on the 14ers was just climbers going out and saying, there's the summit, here's the trailhead, what's the most obvious direct route sure. to get there? And since a lot of this use occurs during the summer when you have thunderstorms in the afternoon, people were not looking for extraneous, yeah, yeah. <laughs> circuitous routes. It was like, let me get up and down as quickly as possible. Yep. So you start going up and down this fragile plant cover and you trample the plants and the plants die and their root structure lets go of this thin alpine soil that yep. has taken a thousand years, an inch to, to develop. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, 12,000 years of evolutionary process just eroding down the hill and smothering other plants and you know when the minute a trail gets um scoured and eroded and loose people say oh that's uncomfortable and so they'll step out onto the tundra pretty soon you can have multiple what we call trail braids where Mm -hmm. there are separate trails on one route on mount elbert we're going to be doing in a couple of years there are seven seven trails right next to each other really? and all of the soil in between is starting to erode and fall over and you know pretty soon you have areas that can be uh 20 50 100 feet wide mm-hmm. with all of the plant cover destroyed that's so how do you even begin to prioritize which mountains to work on because you know you got 54 58 different peaks mm-hmm. and you know mount albert's a really popular one and that's a perfect example but i imagine you know, once after you've worked on a peak, maybe four or five years later, it probably needs more work. So what's, 
CFI's method for prioritizing the projects? Sure. Well, when the effort started more than 20 years ago, there was a, a uh, an inventory process where they tried to get a handle on what are the peaks that need the use mm-hmm. uh, that need the work most that have some of the highest use, and they tackled that. And we were have been trying to implement that yeah. uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I was meeting with some folks who were partners of ours working on a project and they worked at uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, the Mm -hmm. consulting firm. And they said, you know, have you really thought about what you're doing here Um, in terms of you you have a, a... more than 15 years of work that's been developed and you've spent millions of dollars on this. How are you managing those trails? How are you prioritizing what's going on in the future? And they helped us really craft a process for going out and inventorying. Um, We did uh, 42 routes Mm -hmm. across the 14ers and some of them were planned and constructed routes. Others were things that were, were putting band-aids on yep. uh, climber-created routes and really tried to, with uniform criteria, say, what are the highest needs? What are the highest priorities? Mm-hmm. We're also in a, a, a second phase of this, what we're calling our Sustainable Trails Project, where we're putting um, very compact infrared trail counters on a number of the peaks so that we can see what the use levels are and when it's occurring yep. uh, so that we can begin assembling all of this and really say, Here's where use is driving on the ground impacts. Uh, here's where we've developed trails and they seem to be holding well. And we can then both be able to get a sense of priority as well as identify specifically what needs to be done, how much that's going to cost, yeah. how many person hours, how many uh, you know dollars per hour it's sure. going to take. And then we can both target resources to the highest priority projects as well as tell funders if they have a particular geographic interest here's what you can buy for a given amount of money to do this work and uh, almost have an, an a la carte menu of mm-hmm. the work that needs to be done and how much it's going to cost and people can order off the menu. Yeah, I remember being at a presentation you did and you went through, you had some slides showing some of the, the maps of, or I guess satellite images, Google Earth images of the 14ers and how I guess you had some of your volunteers or staff members go through and maybe every 20 or 30 feet they evaluate the trail on the way up or and is that is that can you kind of explain sure how that works? we we ended up uh to make sure that we were getting rigorously collected and uh identical information on all of the peaks we had one person do the inventory i know it's popular these days to have crowdsourcing yeah but the reality is that most people who use trails and I was as guilty of this yeah. as someone who had climbed for, for decades and spent time on lots and lots of trails. I didn't know anything about what a properly constructed trail looks mm-hmm. like and where you would need a feature, whether you need it to, you know, some sort of a check step that holds the soil back or retaining walls mm-hmm. or things like that. So we decided that after working with the Forest Service and working with the Booz Allen consultants, that we came up with a, a, a cri- set of criteria to apply. And then literally every foot along a trail, um, my colleague Ben was was inventorying, noting, okay, here's something that was previously built and it's falling apart and it needs annual maintenance or it needs complete reconstruction. Mm-hmm. So we could assign number grades to that. 
if something new needed to be built or something old needed to be repaired, he'd look around, where is the native material that we're going to get? How far away? How much time is it going to take to move it over there? So it ended up having somewhere more than 20,000 data points, all GPS located on these 42 trails. So we knew exactly what would need to be done. Uh, And when I say we needed to look to find the materials on site, that differs radically from peak to peak. So Mm -hmm. for example, we had a few years of work on Mount of the Holy Cross out near uh, the Vale Valley. That's a beautiful and beautiful mountain, and so much rock that's mm-hmm. perfectly configured to a, for us to work with. And yep. when the crews were working on that, they'd just look three to, three feet off the trail core, and here's a corridor, and here's a perfect rock. Yep. Meanwhile, on Maroon Peak out near Aspen, it was taking our crews an average of two hours to find quarry and bring to the trail corridor a rock to work with. So obviously the time constraints on Holy Cross versus Maroon totally different. So the cost is going to be totally yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I really think that's a really smart way to do things. The way you guys have, have marked those data points and you throw it in spreadsheets and you can quantify everything. Have you seen a? Has that made it easier to raise money? I know it's never easy raising money. My wife raises money for a living, but <laughs> um, but I would imagine being able to go to somebody with these spreadsheets that you know you've got some history as to as to how how it cost and how much it cost in the past and then you can project what it's going to cost in the future and you can just throw it in front of these people and say this is what we need has that has that really helped you a lot that has helped out tremendously yeah. it it allows us to go to to different funders and people who have an interest in particular peaks and say this is the challenge this is what it's going to take in mm-hmm. terms of time effort money uh, and like I say, there's sort of almost like an a la carte menu mm-hmm. where people can say, uh, you know, I want to work on this peak or I, I only have X amount of money to, to that I could give to you. Mm-hmm. How could you apply it and how much work could you get done? It allows us to be very specific. Mm-hmm. Now, um, it also allows us after doing this baseline inventory to go back and see how conditions have changed over time. Yeah. And in the process of submitting a grant that thankfully got funded, that's gonna allow us to complete inventories on, there were about 14 or 16 additional peaks that we didn't get, routes that we didn't get to mm-hmm. for various reasons the first go around. So we're gonna be able to, starting in 2017, complete those baseline inventories and begin going back to the routes that were first inventory in 2011 oh, wow. yeah. and see how things have changed. Well, we, to, to help produce that grant request, uh, I had Ben go out to three different peaks. One of them was Holy Cross where we'd had concentrated staff presence for three years between the initial inventory mm-hmm. to when the secondary inventory was done. Gray's and Tories peaks where we had had uh, at least six volunteer projects a year on it. Um, and that was kind of our mid investment case. And then to Mount Chavanel where we hadn't done a thing mm-hmm. and we were able to see how conditions had changed. So mm-hmm. uh, the good part was that our report card grade for Holy Cross had gone from a C to an A minus mm-hmm. because of that concentrated investment. Gray's and Tories actually slipped slightly it went from like a c to a c minus and when we started looking at it in more of a three-dimensional way we were able to say oh we've we've made progress and we've improved the trail condition on the lower altitude sections that are easier for volunteers to get to Mm -hmm. but we slipped and by a greater degree at the higher altitude areas where we really need trained crews who are super fit who are out there every day Mm -hmm. and can go all the way up to the 14,000 foot summit to to do those higher stretches 
that's the the challenge. And then Shavana, which was already one of the worst, most expensive trails in the state to fix, it just got went from an F to a Bluto Blutarski like F minus. Really? Uh, <laughs> if, that, if that's possible. Um, so so by the inventory, the baseline inventories, and being able to go back and do secondary inventories. Yeah. Adding the hiker count information, we'll be able to see how conditions are changing, how much of that looks like it's stemming from increased use, and how much of it might be related to just problem with the trail design or construction. Because yeah. we, we had one project out on San Luis Peak, which is arguably the least visited in the state. Uh-huh. And, and when we had a crew out there, I think the highest total I ever saw were 10 climbers. Oh, really? And most days nobody was out there. There was still significant damage sure. just because of the you know the handful of people who'd gone out yeah. there and they were going straight up hills and so forth. So um, impact is not directly correlated to use. That's interesting. Do you have general estimates of, say, how many people do grazing tours in a year? We've had a trail counter out there on Grays and Tories the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had some data gaps as people have messed with. <laughs> yeah, I remember you said that some of the people counter. would put rocks in front of the counter. Yeah, by we, we have on some of the peaks when we're above timberline, we have to bury these counters in rock cairns adjacent to the trail. Yeah. And I hadn't known this, but there are some people who. Every time they pass a cairn, they think it's good luck to put a rock on there. So that's okay if you're putting it up on the top. Yeah. But where if you, if we have this small little gap and we have the little sensor reading through yeah. there, and little Johnny comes along and puts a rock there, all of a sudden <laughs> we're not collecting data until we go back and, and yeah. remove it. Yeah. So, uh, but on Grays and Tories, on Quandry, uh, on Elbert, some of the front range and most signature uh, peaks in the state, we're getting 25,000 people is, really? our, is our estimate. Uh, and that use is confined really to um, four months from June through the end of uh, September, but even more confined to kind of mid-June through mid-July is, sure. the, is the peak time. Yeah, it's amazing when, you know, sometimes if I'm driving by, I do some work down in South Park and when I go up you know, up uh, towards Breckenridge, I'll do Quandry if I have time. And, you know, in the off season, there's nobody there, even in the fall when there's not much snow. But mm-hmm. you go up there in the summer and it's like, it's just full of people. And you just, it's, it's you're, you guys work is very important because they would, they would destroy the, the mountain otherwise, you know, it's just, there's a, that's a lot of impact. There is, and, and a lot of people, you know, these peaks are some of the most visible and popular forest service destinations in the country. Mm-hmm. And so people come from all over uh, to climb these peaks, and a lot of them don't understand about the fragility of the natural yep. resources. And, you know, nobody's intentionally trying to do damage, but if the trail isn't well designed and easy to follow, people are going to get off route and uh cause impact so yeah and i you know i agree with you very 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 few people go up there with the intention of of tearing something up it's just a lot of people just don't know and that's that's one of the great things about these mountains like quandary or grazing tories that people who have never really climbed a 14 or never really done much outdoor activity can go out there and do it then they fall in love with it and they learn more about it and then they get into you know donating to you guys or donating to other conservation um, organizations. I think it's uh, doing a 14er is a great, a great kind of gateway drug into uh, you know caring about the the, the mountains and, and the 
landscape out here. At least it was Definitely. for me. Definitely. I mean, that's when the first time I ever came out here was in high school. I went to the Arkansas River Valley and did Mount Yale. And I mean, that was, you know, that's what got me into all this stuff. So, um, you talking about your funders. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys are, are funded? I know you on your website, you have some corporate partnerships with different outdoor companies. Um, I know you get some grants from the government. Can you kind of explain how you guys pay for the work you do? Yeah, of, of necessity, we have a, a very diverse funding source. Mm-hmm. Um, 1% of all charitable giving in the country goes to environment and animal related causes. So you think everything from large conservation groups like the Nature Conservancy yep. to zoos and mm-hmm. animal shelters and so forth. And even within that 1%, if you split it down, a niche activity like CFI's uh, Alpine Stewardship and Trail Construction Mm -hmm. is at the shallow end of the shallow end of the pool. So we have to try really hard and assemble a whole diverse uh, mix of funders. We um, thankfully in Colorado have our state lottery proceeds directed through Great Outdoors Colorado to uh, parks and open space and we compete through some grant competitive grants that the State Parks and Wildlife Agency has. They're a big a big chunk of funding for us. There's a group called the National Forest Foundation Mm -hmm. out of Missoula, Montana, that has been a very, very strong funder of ours. Mm -hmm. Um, We've increasingly tried to connect to communities throughout the state, the mountain communities that have that trailhead economic uh, impact. Mm -hmm. So, you know, city of Aspen, Pitkin County, town of Breckenridge, some of the Summit County local governments. So we get some of those government grants. Um, we also try to engage the 14er enthusiasts across the country. We had last year about 1,400 donors uh, from 44 states, District of Columbia, and uh, four international countries that that give to us. Um, Sometimes hard to find those people and let them know who we are because we can't advertise out on the peaks. And then we do corporate partnerships with both outdoor industry companies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, REI has been a mainstay supporter of ours for many yep. years. Osprey PAX has been a, a, nice. a big funder. Um, we also try to work with civic minded and outdoor oriented companies mm-hmm. that uh, to do teamwork trail building projects. A Kaiser Permanente mm-hmm. uh, is, is a, a big partner of ours that gets people out to work. Yep. Um, and speaking of having tr- crews out there working on the trails and doing all the work you do, I know that you do have um, youth crews. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Um, over the last five years, we had more than 60% of our volunteer work come mm-hmm. from uh, youth, young adults. So kids who are in youth summer camps, college outdoor programs, um, Good example is Colorado College, where their new students coming onto campus will mm-hmm. do a service learning project mm-hmm. with some group, and we end up working with um, somewhere about a, I think a quarter of all of the incoming students to that college oh, wow. come up on like a three four day project with us. Um, so the youth projects are, are really great in the sense that there's a good overlay with the time off that you have, whether you're in high school and college sure. and our limited work season over the summer. Yep. Uh, it also provides us with a great 
educational opportunity Mm -hmm. when you're out there to say, hey, these are these plants, you know, see the little plant that looks like it's in the the six pack at the garden store at the beginning of spring. Well, that's a 30 year old plant and that's all the the bigger that's going to get. And if you step on it 10 times, that might die. And, you know, sometimes that could be a plant that only lives on this mountain. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. What a great opportunity for those kids to get out there. That that's really could be life-changing, especially somebody coming, if somebody's coming to Colorado College from the East Coast to be up there, you know, that high altitude doing that hard work. That's uh, Oh, yeah. It's, it's eye-opening and, uh, and, and mind-expanding. Oh, sure. Um, so I'm in the, the private land business, and a lot of these 14ers are on public land. But every now and then, I know that there are some issues – uh, access issues to the 14ers because there may be private land that a trail crosses an old mining claim or something like that. Do you have any interesting stories about that? I remember years ago when I was uh, going to do Lincoln and Bross, Democrat, there was some issues with the, a trail closure up high because it crossed over a mining claim. Right. Do you, uh, any, could you explain how that works to people? Sure. So there are throughout the Rocky Mountains a lot of these old historic mining claims. Now some some ended up becoming working mines and others were just areas where people were prospecting, but due to mining law, people would be able to claim that land as their as their own and it became, you know, you patent the mining claim it becomes uh, private land. Mm-hmm. So we have some places, you mentioned the Lincoln Democrat Bross group out of, uh, of Alma, um, very popular uh, route where you can hit, uh, if you're counting Cameron, you can hit four yeah. summits in, in one loop trail. Well, much of the route was all over old um, mining mm-hmm. areas, many of which had been had been active. And in the mid 2000s, the landowners grew concerned about liability if someone got hurt you know there were old abandoned mine structures and mine shafts and and things like that and uh there was a concern that they might get sued if someone got hurt so they had closed down access cfi was involved in working with then governor owens to get some additions made to our recreational use statute that would have further protected um, the land private landowners we also worked to configure the route such that it was only staying on land where people were giving us permission to Mm -hmm. to cross. Um, So that's by and large been resolved. There's Mm -hmm. still always ongoing issues of if the landowner changes changes perspective. Um, One that is a good example of where CFI is trying to resolve private access issues is on Mount Chavanel, uh, down near Salida. Sure. Um, probably about 95% of the route is on forest service land. But as you approach the summit, you go through a saddle area mm-hmm. and there are, um, 11 long strips of mining claims yeah. that are up there and both where the existing user created route goes and where, uh, the forest service plan new route goes, uh-huh. Uh, crosses private land and the Forest Service won't let us address what is one of the highest priority, biggest disaster routes that we have in the state until we get private the permission from the private landowner. So we are working with the Forest Service to try to collaboratively acquire these lands, bring them into public ownership. If the owners aren't willing to sell, at least get some sort of access easement to allow the trail to be built. Uh, so yeah. there are probably about... Um, 
five or six peaks with um, these private access issues, yeah. large to to small. Uh, I mean, Calabra is entirely on a private ranch. So yep. if we only had whatever it is a hundred and twenty million dollars or yeah. so, we could <laughs> we could we could get that trail going. Um you know that that's that we're listing that for sale. Did you know that? Well I can I get knew, you a deal I, on I, it. I think you we were. Maybe you can cut us a nonprofit rate yeah. on that one. Uh, um that, you know that's that, even though I've been selling ranches for over ten years now, it, it always amazes me how some of these landowners just out of some principle will not grant an easement in a case like that because you know up you think up high on Bross and Democrat people are going to walk over it no matter what and so you think they would just give an easement or sell you part of it but I don't know it's people. you know it, it, it is private land yeah. and we on our website and whenever we're talking about it say look you you need to respect yes. private property rights yes. and only cross if people allow you to do it and as much as you want to go climb a route, if it's not allowed, you should yeah, rules <laughs> respect rules. that. Um, yeah. You know, there are a lot of people who will go out and do it regardless. Sure. Uh, but it makes it harder for everyone else if, um, if those private rights aren't respected. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and so is there a, a certain 14er that you guys have worked on over the years that's kind of the uh, a great success story that you would model your other projects after? Is there, there one particular that comes to mind? Well, we've been doing this work for more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. So we take pride in the whole body of, of sure. work that we've done. Some of the, uh, some of the peaks that I look at as being, you know, really great examples um, in Chicago basin, there are three 14ers out there, Wyndham, Sunlight and Aeolus. Mm-hmm. And we've, uh, done some of our most technical and most remote work out in that region. We're going to be working this summer on Mount Aeolus to finish up the last of the trails in that area. And these are ones that uh, have incredibly elaborate trail design and rock staircases. Because they're um, relatively technical, all three of those, right? Uh, yes. I mean, we're we're not doing the route all the way to the summit. Sure. We're doing the route through the vegetated terrain. And usually once you get into like, you know, third class terrain, even harder second class mm-hmm. terrain where uh, you're having to scramble, we're not going to build a route there. We're not going to... Um, remove the inherent challenge of the, of the peak, but even getting up to the approach areas mm-hmm. involves uh, very, very technical rock staircases to be constructed. Sure. We had one on, on North Maroon Peak where there were 69 linked rock steps going wow. up uh, this um, moraine field. <laughs> that would be hard work if you're doing it at the beach, but the idea of being at 12, 13,000 feet, throwing those rocks around, that's... Well, uh, you have to go find the rock, bring bring it it over, and figure out how it can fit. And again, all of this is being done by hand. We're not using machine tools or anything like that. And, you know, you don't have hours to be chipping away at the rock just to make it fit, right? You know, so you... It it involves some really um really skilled technical rock work by our crew leaders and some of them are some of the best in the country that that come work with us 
That's really cool. Um, you mentioned just just now about the different classes of mm-hmm. class one, two, three. Can you explain that just for people sure. who don't know? So there, in in hiking slash climbing, uh, you have what are known as um, class ratings. Mm-hmm. So class one is just a a maintained trail. Class two is when you're off trail, but you're rarely having to use your hands to assist in climbing. Third class is when you really are um, on all fours much of the time uh, where you're, you know, you're making sure you're having your three points of contact. Fourth class is when you're doing that, but the risk of falling is much more significant and the consequences of doing so would be more uh, uh, serious. And then fifth class is when most people will be using ropes and uh, climbing protection harnesses, those sorts of things. So um, we focus principally on the class one and sometimes into the easy class two Mm -hmm. trail construction. When it gets above that, you'd really be changing the whole nature of the experience for mm-hmm. the, for the hiker slash climber. So yep. we don't, you know, we don't want to build stairways and elevators to the top of these mountains and sure. dumb them down in the experience. I think I saw something on your Facebook page on April 1st about building a staircase or building a, a escalator or something of Quandry Peak. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we, right. We, we try to have some fun and some of our, um, some of our most, followed posts have over the years been our April fool spoof. Uh-huh. So yeah, this year we were going to put the, uh, the escalator up quandary peak to, uh, <laughs> to, to make that, um, you know, more approachable and less damaging. Yeah. A couple of years ago, we did one where by happenstance, the peaks we were working on were some of the lowest altitude 14. Uh-huh. So we said, you know, we're going to quarry the rocks from the summit of the peak as we're making these stair steps and retaining walls. Yeah. And by the time we're done, the peaks will be under 14,000 feet. <laughs> so nobody's going to want to climb them when they're 13ers. And we will have, have reduced the impact by uh, limiting the amount of people. Does anybody there. ever take it seriously? Oh, th- that is the art of trying to get just up to that line and maybe even a little yeah. across it to where some people are going to freak out and think you've totally <laughs> lost your mind and and just just pay attention to few future april fools days because we have you know we have some other things that we're working on it's funny to watch people's reaction to that stuff i love the onion and every time they put an article there's always a few people that comment thinking it's real yes you know just some crazy story yes. um so one of the reasons I started doing this podcast is because I meet all these really interesting people who are doing interesting work, but they're also very interesting themselves. And when we first met, I, th- I thought that about you and your, your work history and just you know how you kind of got into this. And so I was wondering if we could just talk about a little bit about your personal background and how you got to where you are now. So where did you grow up? Uh, well, I was uh, born in the Bay Area. My okay. father's family was from California. My mother's family was uh, from Oregon. And uh, born in Berkeley, grew up in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, always in sight of Mount Hood. And, you know, one of the... Uh, I've always been a, a very physical outdoor person. I was a runner and cyclist as a, as a kid. And, you know, every day, especially like when I was in high school and I went to school across town, I'd be on the bus and I'd see sunrise with Mount Hood and I think, ah, that's so cool and uh, wanted to climb it. Uh, My father had been an avid backpacker and Uh and adventurer. And uh, I mean, I can point back to 
a backpacking trip uh, where I had my 13th birthday. And, you know, this is back in the 70s when parents were a little uh, looser. Yeah. They didn't have <laughs> apps to track their kids yeah. all the time. And the, my father, stepmother, and my sisters were interested in doing um, an easier route from one day's camp to the next day's camp. And my father was like, yeah, you can go off by yourself when you're 13 <laughs> over a high pass in, uh, in Tuolumne Meadows yeah. in Yosemite. And uh, it was one of the defining days of my life really? where I just, you know, I was convinced there were bears coming out from, from every tree and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, that it was like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm on the edge of what I could do. But when I got to these high Alpine passes and I saw marmots and the snow up there and I was like, this is, this is cool. How do, oh, yeah. how do I figure a way to do this? Well, you know, I was in boy scouts and uh -huh. did a lot of outdoor stuff. Um, you know, in high school we'd, have Backpacker magazine oh, yeah. wedged into our folders yeah. in class when, you know, kind of reading that, hoping uh -huh. no one's going to pay attention. Um, and um, I always had this, this love of the mountains and being outside. And I had, through my um, coursework in college, had really focused on public policy, political science, mm -hmm. history. I, out of college, got working for some elected officials in the state of Oregon. Okay. I did uh, lobbying um, communications in my high school. We had an NPR station, so uh -huh. I was a, a radio announcer growing up. So there was always this confluence between public policy and media and yep. issues. But I found I was always working on someone else's issues. Uh -huh. and, and in my spare time, avocationally, I was just obsessed in my 20s and early 30s with uh, climbing and mountains. Uh -huh. I, every spare moment was going climbing. And uh, 20 years ago, I had this amazing stroke of luck where I was able to come out to Colorado to work for the American Alpine Club, a oh, national wow. climbing and mountaineering organization. And I worked there for 10 years, focusing on climbing access and policy throughout yeah. the country. Got me to go to Denali and you know Yosemite and the Tetons and so many cool places to work on, yep. on issues. And uh, spent a little time in private land conservation and... Uh, Seven years ago, my wife foolishly said, you know, I was looking to make a move. And she said, oh, you know, there's this, the 14ers initiative is here in Golden. Yeah. And uh, that would be perfect for you. And I think she, uh, I think she regrets saying that. Yeah. Because it's become a, a, a full-scale addiction, um, you know, working on this organization and these peaks and helping protect the resource and helping allow people to have the opportunities to go do what are life-changing activities. Uh -huh. You know, if you grow up in, in a lot of this country, you don't have things like these peaks in your backyard. Yeah. And if you come here, this is for most people like climbing Mount Everest. Oh yeah. It is something that on their dying day, they're thinking, ah, oh, I remember the time I was out in Colorado yep. and we climbed peak X mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was so cool. And you're doing it with your friends and your family and you're, you're pushing your limits of ability. Uh, so Part of the driving force for me is making sure that, you know, my son and if he has kids and, mm -hmm. and other people out throughout the country can have those life changing experiences, some of just the most beautiful, spectacular places in the, in the world. And, yep. you know, then fight for their protection so that future generations have those experiences. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said about people, you know, kind of the, the being big time life uh memories by coming out here because I was talking with a guy who a father of one of my friends 
but from back in North Carolina, and they're coming out this summer, and they're planning their entire family vacation around climbing Mount Elbert, the highest peak. And so, you know, and you think that's just one person out of the whole country, and you got people from all over, 40-some countries, wanting to do that every year. Um, one thing, I, I get a lot of calls uh, from young people who want to get into the conservation world, and your job to a, to a lot of people seems like a dream job and kind of your career path working at the American Alpine Club and now this. W- would you have any advice for young people who would be who are interested in, in a career in the outdoors, um, outdoor advocacy, uh, any you know kind of a career that would mirror yours? I do. I mean, I'd have to preface it. It's kind of funny that having worked in some of these positions where people say, oh, that's got to be a dream job. Yeah, yeah. It, it's much like friends I have who um, have become mountain guides. Uh-huh. And sometimes the experience changes when like if you're if you're going out to climb just with your friends versus if you're taking clients. Sure. Sometimes these jobs can be so all consuming mm-hmm. that it changes your relationship with the activity. Yeah. So I say that just as a cautionary yeah. Yeah. tale. But um, it, it is amazing every day to be able to get up and say, wow, I'm doing something cool. Uh, the hard part is almost like with any addiction, being able to say, when, when do I put boundaries yeah. about doing it? <laughs> but in terms of the, if someone wants to pursue that career, I think the first part is to realize you have to have the, the personal passion for this work. Mm-hmm. You have to have something that's, that's really motivating you, yeah. but you also have to get the hard skills. Most of the outdoor related environmental advocacy and conservation groups are pretty small. Mm -hmm. So you have to wear multiple hats. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not going to be able to get any of these jobs if you just know one thing. You're going to have to figure out the way that you can add value in a number of different skill sets. So for example, as I mentioned, um, I as a high schooler was able to work as a radio announcer. I then worked in politics where I did a lot of media communication. I worked on issues. Um, I, I then learned uh, the the great art of fundraising, which yeah. people find sometimes intimidating, but really is just about getting people excited about what yeah. you're doing. So if you're working in nonprofits, you usually need to know some of the hard skills. You need to be good with people. You need to be able to communicate what's special about this work that you're doing Mm -hmm. to the lay public using multimedia techniques. Um, You're oftentimes influencing elected officials. So Mm -hmm. figuring out how to, how to do that. Um, So broad based skills, the more that you can understand the technical skills, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm uh, always amazed at at some of the skills that my colleagues have Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of, GIS and some of those, sure. you know, harder skills that I don't have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the more that people can can know that, know the botany, know the, um, you know, the, the technical details. Yep. That makes them stronger. But they still have, you still have to be able to be able to integrate with people and get them fired up. Sure. No yeah. one's going to give their money if they're if they're just looking at your technical report. You sure. Know? Well, that's I think that's what you guys are so good at because I've been to several of your your fundraising events and. You've got kind of the perfect balance of the quantitative hard numbers, but then the the beautiful photos and the beautiful stories. And you, you can look at those quantitative numbers and then you can look at kind of the big picture and how beautiful it is. Everybody out here has a connection to the 14ers in some way. And so it's it's kind of the perfect storm. I'm not saying it's easy. I think you guys have worked very hard to to, you know, kind of get that pitch in place. But I think I think you guys do a great job with that. 
Well, the, the friends who always say, oh, you, you know, they'll respond to like a Facebook post when in the summer I've been out, you know, collecting data on a peak and I share pictures of it and the marmots and pikas. Yeah. And oh, you have a dream job. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, come by in fall when I'm working six days a week and until 11 o'clock at night hitting uh, deadlines on That's fundraising right. proposals. Not quite as glamorous yeah. on those days. <laughs> yeah, there's, I don't think there's any job, no matter how cool it seems, there's, there's no job that's... Uh, the perfect dream job. It wouldn't be if it was just all fun the whole time, you know, right. I mean, you, gotta, you gotta work hard. Exactly. Um, so for anybody who's listening to this, who wants to come out here and do a 14 er um, do you have any advice for a first time person? You know, which mountain would be a good one to start with kind of what you should, uh, general guidelines for what you should do for getting up at the top and down, you know, before the thunderstorms come in. Sure. Well, f- the, f- the first thing is to have people pick the right, a, a, a suitable objective. Mm-hmm. Um, that usually is going to be one of our more approachable, less technical peaks in the front range or close in Sawatch range. Yep. You know, you think of Gray's Tories, Quandry Peak, Mount Albert. Um, those are some of the ones that are... Um, if you're a fit hiker, mm-hmm. you're not going to be exceeding your abilities. So other things to keep in mind are that this is an activity that's going to take many hours to do. And if you're coming from some other part of the country and you're not uh, endowed with all of the great red blood uh, cells that we get from living here, you know, understand it's going to take a number of hours. Could be 6, 8, 10, 12 hours to do a peak. So you need to start early. Um, You need to make sure you have adequate water. So easily three liters of water. You're going to need to have high energy food snacks to to eat along the way. Mm -hmm. Make sure, you know, you have uh, several layers of progressively warmer clothing. You're going to have a waterproof, breathable shell. You're going to have a hat. You're going to... Um, one of the things that we see a lot is people going light and fast. Mm-hmm. So they have uh, tennis shoes or you know light trail running shoes. That can get you beat up uh, mm-hmm. over some of these trails. And when people get sore feet, then they're thinking, well, I'm going to get off the rocky trail and over onto that nice lush uh, tundra vegetation cause a lot of impact. So wear boots trekking poles especially uh, with a number of decades of this activity yeah. under my knees uh-huh. it's always good to have those um you know be be sensible about it and be humble about it uh-huh. you know the mountains are always going to be there people oftentimes get into trouble when they get too overzealous they go for a peak that's beyond their abilities they get a late start mm-hmm. they get caught in the thunder the thunderstorms in the afternoon they don't have extra clothes mm-hmm. it's those usually succession of errors that cause people to need to be rescued and to mm-hmm. put themselves and their and their partners in in jeopardy yeah i think one thing that's always important to remember whether you're doing Grays and Tories or Mount Everest is that the the summit is halfway <laughs> you know i think a lot of people see it as the finish line but for me personally, I you know going downhill is much harder for me than going up. I can go up all day, but like you, you know, the, my knees aren't aren't what they used to be, and um, I can find myself kind of stumbling downhill. And you know, you, I would much rather be hustling uphill than down. And it, it'd be a scary deal to get up on the summit and have lightning going going around and realize you got 
two hours to get down. Some people end up with a tunnel-like summit fever. Now, I've, where I've they, had it before. They're, they're figuring out their caloric expenditures, and they're thinking, oh, if I just get there, mm-hmm. and they've, they've burned all of their energy up. They've been focusing on the trail and not looking at the clouds. Uh, I always have my head on the swivel looking around, like, look at that cloud. Well, is that a benign cloud? Is it starting to grow into a thunderhead? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and people can really get into trouble if they don't have enough equipment, they've started mm-hmm. late, they expended all their resources to get to the summit, and they were so myopically focused on that summit that they didn't see that there were storm clouds approaching. Yeah. They might be coming from behind you, you know, so mm-hmm. you don't want to end up there and like, oh, I'm totally spent, I don't have gear, and it's starting to thunder and lightning. I mean, <laughs> that is a bad place to be. <laughs> it really is bad. And if you've ever come close, it probably won't happen again, because... You know, when I, the, the first few times I started going up in the mountains around here, I, I never got in a really bad situation, but there are a few times where those, those clouds can develop from a nice looking, beautiful little summertime cloud into a scary thunderhead really quickly. And uh, you never forget it. And if, if you aren't familiar with an area, you don't understand what's normal. And mm-hmm. I got into trouble once in Ecuador on one of the volcanoes there when we would had been dropped off at uh, the trailhead and we were going up to this high altitude hut. And my partner and I got stuck in this thunderstorm. And, you know, my head's felt like a thousand bees had, had inhabited my skull. And I mean, I was just terrified for probably a good half hour in down in that emergency position thinking, really? (laughs) Oh yeah, it was, it was not fun. And you know, you're on this volcanic cone, so there was no shelter. There was no place to hide. Was buzzing? Was Uh, any metal on you buzzing? Oh yeah. I mean, I'd thrown my pack down and my ice axe and those sorts of things. And I was crouched down is like, please, please, when's this going to be over? Uh, and, and that moment, the fear of that moment is still with me, you know, almost 20 years later. So yeah, you, you don't want to get caught out in thunderstorms here. People, people die. We are the second, um, highest lightning fatality state in the, in the country. And probably on a per capita basis, or it might even be. What's first, Florida? Uh, Florida, I think, has the has the most overall fatalities, just because it's flat as a pancake. Sure. But here, you know, so many of the lightning fatalities are up on the high peaks. Yeah, yeah. You you can feel very very helpless very quickly when uh, when you start buzzing like that. <laughs> I had it happen Definitely. one time, uh, and it I'll never forget it. It's it's so scary. <laughs> um, so I've in the past episodes I've had these kind of rapid fire questions, and your answer doesn't have to be rapid, but um, just kind of general questions that I think listeners can get some good value from. Um, for you, one question I have that I haven't asked the other people is, "What's your favorite fourteener? Do you have a favorite?" It's a hard it's a hard choice. I mean, so many memories with so many yeah. different peaks, and especially those I've climbed multiple times. But I, w- I would have to say that El Diente Peak, which is technically a non-14er uh-huh. it doesn't really count but i think it does yeah i uh, climbed that last summer as i was out looking the work that our crew did in the Kilpacker basin it is spectacularly beautiful really? you have this um route that sort of moves around the mountain it gets into third class in some spots and then cool. you have this nice little airy summit and uh did it on a perfect day with one of my colleagues last year, and I was like, "That's a I've never done that's that. That's a memory that will that will last." So down in the San Juans, a little bit south of Telluride. Yeah, well, I'm going to be down there this summer, so I'll I'll put that on the list. I did 
Wetterhorn mm-hmm. years ago, and it, it kind of reminds me of what, how you just described that. Yeah, that was my previously favorite. Oh, really? 14. That's my so favorite. Yeah, bumped out a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to put that on my list. Um, I always like asking people about books that they read that they enjoy. Um, do you have any favorite books or books that you would recommend about the West? It doesn't have to be related to mountains. Just any any book that has been meaningful to you and your career and life out here? Sure. Well, I I, I, um, I don't know that it particularly ties in with too much except an early political campaign yeah. I ran. But uh, a couple of summers ago, I read the book Astoria about yep. the uh, settlement, book. John Jacob Astor and, and his fur trading settlement. I had, when I was younger and worked in politics, I'd run for a month a political campaign out on the North Oregon coast. Uh-huh. So very familiar with Astoria and learning about... Um, the settlement of that area and and really how this was in what 1815 i mean very very early and um and oregon became a state in 1859 so the difference between that was the most isolated um northern oregon through washington and british columbia coast was the, the last area in the world of coastline to get mapped outside of the uh arctic and antarctic oh yeah and just a spectacular book about I the history. I thought that book was that. so good. It was, it's kind of like the, the sequel to Lewis and Clark because yes. Lewis and Clark went and then these guys were the, the first commercial expedition, I guess. And I just cannot imagine surviving in that environment in the Pacific Northwest back in those days. You know, you, I, I did a semester of Knowles there, and we had all the fancy gear and everything, and it was still oh. one of the most miserable, I mean, miserable in a good way, but it toughened me up as far as the rain and the cold, and it's always just warm enough so it doesn't snow. Yes. So it's maybe 35-degree <laughs> rain. And, you know, you think about those guys in, in leather boots. Yes. And, I mean, that, that book is great. My, my wife is a, a fourth-generation Coloradan. I'm on my mother's side, a fourth-generation Oregonian. And when, when oh, we were right. first dating, she went out in uh, uh, over Christmas, and she's like, I've never been this cold in my yeah. life. It's, like, it's not really that cold. Yeah. It's just bone-chilling, damp, and wet. Yeah. And to not have heated homes and Gore-Tex, uh, yeah, it would have been a miserable experience. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you liked that book. I thought that book was was wonderful. I thought it was it's great information, but it's really, really well-written. Um, it's just it's easy to read. It almost reads like fiction. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries that you like? One that, that really touches home to me is, uh, came out within the last year or so called, um, Antarctica, a year on ice. And, um, my father had spent a year in, uh, McMurdo sound yeah. back in the late fifties in the international geophysical year, oh, wow. um, back at the time where there was like nothing there. I yeah. mean, now there's a major science in camp, sure. but, a um, New Zealand, uh, photographer and technical guy who's worked in, um, uh, McMurdo for, I think he's something like 15 years uh-huh. did this documentary of wintering over and, the sights and uh, experiences were just spectacular. And it's a place where my, my father had told me about yeah. his experiences there. And that was in some ways what drove me to get into a lot of this outdoor really? stuff. So being able to see it and uh, see what few people have ever seen was just a, a magical experience for me. I have not seen that. I'll, I need to check that out. Um, other than hang out on 14ers, uh, what else do you do for fun? Do you have any other hobbies? I know you've got a, 
uh, son, do you guys get out? Uh, we do. I mean, I, I try to not be that dad yeah. that's, that's pushing him sure, and, and sure. hating it. But, um, you know, I've always been sort of what I call a jock of all trades. Uh-huh. So, you know, runner, cyclist, skier, uh, have all of the all of the gear for whatever seems to be the right thing to do. Um, one of the activities that I started getting into right as I left the Northwest was uh, sea kayaking, oh, which cool. not so many opportunities around yeah. here, but whenever I'm in other other places and I can do that, I love that. And um, uh, again, not a good sport for Colorado, but sure. I really enjoyed snorkeling and was uh-huh. just, just out in Western Australia uh, with my family visiting a good friend out there and oh, nice. was snorkeling and seeing some pretty cool coral and fish and uh, love love that. And I also had my, uh, a friend of mine gave me the nickname. So if, if I'm on like 14ers.com, there's this guy, Yardman. Uh-huh. So I, I love, uh, you know, gardening and uh-huh. um um, botany, yep, playing yep. around with that, and um, reading whenever I get the chance. Sure, that's great. Um, so you just told the story about the lightning strike, but I like asking people, "What's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you in the outdoors?" That's pretty crazy. Do you have anything that tops no, uh, that? Well, actually, the the most sort of surreal experience was back when I was in my more um, technical rock climbing mm-hmm. days. Uh, I'd gone up with some friends to. Squamish, British Columbia, yeah, which yeah. is uh, a little bit north of uh, Vancouver, and we were climbing uh, this route called Deidre on the uh, the Stuamish Chief, the big mm-hmm. rock formation there, and we had just uh, I had just led this pitch up. I think it was like there it's like a six pitch climb, and I think mm-hmm. it was the fifth fifth one, and I'd run out of all of my gear, and I had just gotten to the anchors, and it just clipped in, and all of a sudden this thing. Bam! Just hits me on the shoulder, and I'm like freaking out. Like, oh, was that a rock? What's yeah. happening? Am I going to die? And it was because there was a way you could hike up higher onto the a ledge system, and someone had thrown like half a cantaloupe <laughs> after they had after they had uh, had, had eaten uh, the cantaloupe, and this thing hit me, and, and I went from first thinking, "My God, I'm going to die," yeah, you know, yeah. like. Oh, I got cantaloupe all over me. So I, I would have to say that's probably the most just bizarre, that's like very weird. Bizarre. Yeah, that's very. It's a good thing it wasn't a watermelon. You thought you were bleeding all over the place. I really would have thought that uh, there was need for panic. Um, so you've spent time in the Pacific Northwest, Colorado, some time in California. Do you have a favorite place in the West? That's hard. I don't know what mine would be. It, it, it would be equivalent to asking a parent of multiple kids yeah. which one's your favorite. I mean, I, I have, have truly been so blessed in my life and my career to have gone all over the place. I, I would have to say, though, that the Yosemite and the Tuolumne Meadows area has been, I mean, that was where that, where that fundamental life-changing day was for me when yeah. I was 13. Uh, I've also had with some really good friends some some great climbs up on the, the high peaks in the, in Tuolumne. That's a special place. The the north side of Mount Hood, which was kind of my Mount Hood was my playground sure. growing up, and uh, one of my first technical mountaineering routes mm-hmm. was up there. And so I don't know. So hard to narrow it down to like a favorite place, yeah. but um, that's those are a couple of my favorites. Well, you're the fourth podcast, and so two of the four have said Yosemite. So it's, and I've never been there. 
It's ridiculous. Okay, you have to go. I know. It is. It is. It's uh, unacceptable. It, it is just uh, stunning. And you think what it must have been like when Muir was wandering around there. Sure. Uh, without the hordes of people. But even with them, you get out into some of the more remote places. Like, and get up in the valley is just so dramatic with the cliffs uh-huh. and the waterfalls. But if you get up into Tuolumne Meadows, um, Cathedral Peak, I did a climb on um, Mathis Crest, which is like this giant sort of fin of rock. Uh-huh. And you're, you're, not, you're both climbing up, but you're also doing this lateral climbing that just goes on and on in kind of this yeah. third, fourth, and, and moderate fifth class terrain. And the weather is usually wonderful out there in the summer yeah um, i need to get so there it's, it's absurd you have to. that i haven't been there gas up the car yeah <laughs> um and so last quick question is what do you think the biggest challenge and opportunity is facing colorado in the near future without a doubt population growth is the biggest uh challenge we face um this my wife's family grew up here and they'll talk about prior decades. My father-in-law worked in marketing when they were starting up Breckenridge back mm-hmm. in the 60s. And oh, wow. they talk about you know, living in, in Aspen and Breckenridge when they were these you know, primitive little towns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, know, you think how much that has changed. You know, in the decade of the 90s, we were the third fastest growing state. In the decade of the, of the aughts, we were, I think, fell to like eighth. But we're still always up in the top sure. 10, if not the top five. And so many of the people who move here are fit, outdoor-oriented, mm-hmm. smart people who they want to come here for all of the lifestyle amenities. And they're the people who want to ski and climb. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm illustrative of the problem. You're illustrative I am. I of the problem. Yeah. And, and so it's, it is both a challenge and an, and an opportunity mm-hmm. because you're getting these people who are putting more demand on all of our outdoor resources, mm-hmm. whether it's skiing in the winter or climbing in the summer, but you also have these people who are super passionate about it. Mm-hmm. So how do you channel that passion to protect these places? Mm-hmm. And as best we can, you know, allow a lot of people to come without destroying the inherent natural, wonderful qualities mm-hmm. of them. So it's, you know, and, and, and as a, transplant from another great western state it's hard for me to say well i drop the gate yeah. now i'm oh, here yeah, yeah. Uh, these other people they're causing the problem so it's it's a sticky wicket for sure it um, definitely is yeah whenever i'm sitting in traffic on i-25 and i start getting frustrated i think well this is because of me yeah you know, coming in from north carolina um so if you could make a request of people listening to this podcast um what would it be I think the most fundamental thing we need to inculcate into everyone who's doing these outdoor activities is a, a real sense of leave no trace mm-hmm. and in understanding about the environments you're going, whether it's the fragile alpine tundra resources up on the 14ers, whether it's the thin cryptobiotic soils near Moab in the desert. I mean, you need to know before you go what's unique about the places, 
how you need to channel your, you know, your leave no trace um, knowledge in that particular area. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have so many people coming here. You don't want to throw up the gate and put in permit systems and say Mm -hmm. only X number of people get to have this experience. But the more that people are educated, the more that they're sort of humble in their approach to nature and not, uh, you know, we're not conquering these peaks. Mm -hmm. We're, they're allowing us to have these Mm -hmm. times. So let's, let's do the least impact to the natural resource, the plants, the animals. Um, Let's try to coexist as best we can, because um, if we don't have that LNT approach, these peaks are going to be really in sad shape. And it's all the other places. It's the climbing areas. It's the mountain biking trails. It's all of the other great places. You know, we got to protect it. And if we don't, and that's from individual actions, um, it's going to be a worse experience for the next person. Yep. Um, so how can people connect with CFI? Uh, we have a couple of different ways. You know, we have people who are interested in supporting us and following us from all over the world. So our website is a main portal. That's mm-hmm. the numbers one, four mm-hmm. and the letters E R S dot O R G. From there, you can link to a number of different other social media channels that we have uh, are most popular for just staying um, uh, involved is our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have a YouTube library that now has more than 40 educational videos. Those about, are great, by the way. About our work. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we're coming out with uh, a series this summer that we're going to try to shoot about alpine wildlife. Mm-hmm. So we did a series on botany. Now we're going to try to focus on you know, the marmots and pikas and mountain goats and ptarmigan and other mm-hmm. wildlife that you'd see up in the Alpine, what's unique about them and what's, uh, uh, you, what's the behavior you need to have around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly important if you're on a peak like Quandry or some of the ones in Chicago Basin where you have all these mountain goats yeah. and people <laughs> get up there not realizing like, you know, these guys are, yeah. uh, they could really do quite a lot of damage to Very you quickly. or more importantly, if your dog's up there unleashed, uh, I, I'd bet on the goat on yeah. that encounter. <laughs> so those are, those are ways people can stay abreast of what we're doing and get engaged. We have a variety of volunteer projects over the summer. We have need for people we call peak stewards who mm-hmm. are, uh, volunteer educators that go mm-hmm. out, talk about leave no trace, uh, help try to get hikers, um, attuned to the unique needs of the 14ers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so all of those things come through our website and other channels. Yeah, you guys seem to have a really great presence online. With The, the YouTube videos are great. I think that's a, a very smart thing to do. It takes a lot of effort, I would think, to produce those things. It's another one of those horrible days when you're out there with experts on the peaks, yeah. you know, having them share their passion yeah. for, for the place. I mean, it's, it's one of those where I should be paid time and a half to do that. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is it. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Ed. This has been a pleasure. There you have it, another episode in the books. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, Lloyd and his team at the 14ers Initiative are doing very, very important work. And uh, he's a great guy and a really interesting guy, and I I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. So if you have a chance, go to the Colorado 14ers Initiative website, go to their Facebook, check them out, donate some money if you can. They do a great job, and it ensures that everybody, me, you, and everybody in the future will be able to access these great mountains that make Colorado so special. Thanks to Mountain Khakis for their support, and I will look forward to talking with you soon. Thanks. Bye.